disappointed, but I do know many of you. Uh, we pray for you like you prayed for us this morning in our pastoral prayers often. Um, and I just want to yeah, give our thanks to you and your church. So much of what you guys do and represent here in the center of Providence um, has its ripple effects in the, in the local churches that kind of go outwards from Providence. I think of things like the Simeon Trust Workshop, the Marriage Conference you're having in a few weeks, something that we, I don't think we could probably do, um, New England Pastors Retreat, a lot of things that you might have no idea that even go on uh, that, that your church and your support um, supports in, in, our, in our local area, that our church and the pastors here in New England really um, get, to, get to benefit from. So thank you very much. I'm very thankful for your pastor. Um, I'm not thankful that he's not doing well. But I'm glad that it's given me an opportunity to come preach today. I need to have get him over to, uh, to Godspeed. I've asked Travis twice, and I'm 0 for 2 with Travis. So there you go. I'm not sure what I have to do to get him over there. Um, but anyways, a couple years ago, I did a short sermon series zooming in on the heart of Christ for sinners and for sufferers. And, um, and we looked in that series at different angles, kind of at Christ's heart, and we looked at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, to explore the kindness of Christ. So I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, three very short verses this morning. Can anyone tell me what very important holiday we have coming in 12 days' time? What was that? Close, but not 12 days time. That's February 14th, February 17th, everyone. You can answer, it's fine. Sorry? No, no, no. You're probably not going to guess it. It's Random Acts of Kindness Day, apparently. I imagine most of us have heard or experienced the phenomenon known as Random Acts of Kindness. Maybe someone paid for your meal over at Chick-fil-A drive through or something. Apparently, this thing we know as random acts of kindness began all the way back in the 1980s when Princess Diana, a royal figure, touched someone with AIDS. May have been a publicity stunt at some level, but she was trying to show that, you know, you didn't contract AIDS through just physical touch. And even though it was probably a, a, a symbolic act, it was a very humane gesture, and it was heralded as such by the media. Today, we have other figures who have become culturally iconic, iconic because of their kindness. Jason Gay is a, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote an article that caught my attention a couple years ago entitled, The Importance of Being Ted Lasso. Now, some of you are wondering, who in the world is Ted Lasso? Well, he's this fictional character on a popular television show, and you don't need to watch the television show. In fact, you probably shouldn't watch the television show to know or understand its cultural significance. But what happens in this show is Ted is basically this American amateur football coach in Midwestern America, and he moves to be a, a, soccer, a, a soccer coach for a Premier League soccer club in England. And this good old Midwestern guy is thrust into this just ruthlessly toxic environment. Everyone hates him. The fans hate him. The, 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 the players want him fired. And he just appears to be this innocent yet helplessly naive figure. In reality, he's not naive at all. He's just deeply committed to being kind. 
And this begins to reshape everyone around him. And so the journalist that I was reading on home was saying, if we could all just be like Ted Lasso, all the problems that we're feeling from the last few years would just go away. Our culture is desperately attracted to kindness. My neighbor has one of those signs in their front yard. You've probably seen them. In this house, we believe. And then it's a sort of secular creed, right? And the last line reads, kindness is everything. Kindness seems to be a virtue that is almost universally appreciated. And yet it's pretty hard or difficult to actually locate. You don't need to look very hard to know that there's a real absence of, many, of kindness in many of the arenas of our own life, our workplaces, our politics, the media, social media. Even your own family dinner table often lacks kindness. In the last few years, if the last few years have shown us anything, they've showed us that we live in increasingly polarized spaces, don't we? The more isolated we became physically, the more we found refuge in online communities, right? And we know that our online interactions push us deeper into tribes, but away from everybody else. Outrage seemed to sell much better, didn't it, than kindness or charity. It seemed like for the last few years we've been faced with an urgent problem daily. And our cultural instinct is not to work together, but to pick sides and then launch grenades at one another, right? It seems we could divide on anything these days. Remember back when safety measures, we, we couldn't decide if they were fundamentally good or fundamentally dangerous. We've been divided over racism. Is it getting better or is it getting worse? Do we support the police or do we call for radical change? What's America's greatest threat? The far right or the far left? And so we've always been on the lookout. Who's wearing my team jersey? And if you're not, here's a grenade. And that's all just at a cultural level, right? What about our interpersonal tensions at work, at home, in our own families? What about our own self-inflicted burdens, our sin and our own failures? We're weary people. And so as a culture, we look to figures that inspire us towards kindness and generosity and compassion. Figures like Ted Lasso or Princess Diana. Or we put our hope in initiatives like random acts of kindness, even if they're a bit superficial. But here's the problem. We, we just know that these figures and these initiatives don't really inspire change. We know that having a random acts of kindness holiday is not really the answer to our cultural or our personal weariness. Ted Lasso can't forgive you of real sins. Random acts of kindness cannot ultimately transform you. The world's greatest expressions of kindness still just have no answer to the deep trauma many of you have faced or maybe have even caused. And so we're looking for true kindness. But all our examples and all our initiatives fall woefully short, don't they? Friends, in Christ, we do find someone who is immeasurably kind. And yet, he has the resources in himself to save us and to actually change us. The question is, will we come to him? Will we embrace his kindness? 
I've got four points today. Really, it's the first point is one is the main point, and then the three following points support that main point. So, point number one: an invitation to discipleship. An invitation to discipleship. Matthew eleven verse twenty eight begins with this invitation: "Come to me." You know, I've always read that invitation as simply kind of a father speaking to a weary child. Something like, come my weary, weary child, come and rest on my breast. And that's not exactly wrong. The invitation will result in rest. But the invitation is, is more complex than simply, come and rest. There are three commands in these verses and they all must be taken together. Come to me. Then you see, take my yoke. And third, learn from me. Jesus is not simply saying come. He's saying come to take my yoke. Come and learn from me. When we take those together, we realize this is an invitation to discipleship. And only then when we come to him in this way as a disciple do we find rest. And so so what does it mean to come to Jesus... As a disciple. Well, first it means that we take Christ's yoke. So yoke is literally a bar or a harness that attaches onto an animal. Or sometimes in ancient times even to a person. That helps them plow a field or pull a heavy object. You know, a a yoke is kind of a fascinating metaphor. Because it kind of moves in two directions at the same time. On the one hand, a yoke is a picture of grace. It allows you to carry something that you could not carry on your own. But on the other hand, a a yoke is a sign of servitude. In the Old Testament, bearing a yoke was often the the primary metaphor for a, a nation to be enslaved or in bondage to another nation. So the yoke is a picture of servitude and of submission. And so it would seem that Jesus is inviting us to come under his authority when he says, take my yoke. Jesus is inviting us to make him our master and our Lord. The yoke is a picture of grace and it's a picture of submission. The second part of the invitation is to learn from Christ. So not only is he Lord, he is teacher and guide and counselor. The the invitation to discipleship does not only include submission, but also following someone, listening to him and obeying his wisdom and his instruction. And so now perhaps you're, you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, Luke, you've made one of the sweetest, gentlest invitations sound a bit cold and a little bit cruel. Oh, but wait, everything about this invitation hinges on these words in verse 30. My yoke is easy. Now, my guess is is that we do not understand that phrase. The word easy is the same Greek word that's translated almost all the time in the New Testament as kind. Ephesians chapter 4, 34, be kind, same word, to one another, 
tender-hearted and forgiving one another. Luke 6, 23, love your enemies and show kindness to them. Same word. Romans 2, 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you towards repentance. But when we read my yoke is easy, same word, I think we think that Jesus is saying, hey, other masters are really hard on you. They're very demanding. But if you come to me, my authority is just far less demanding. It's easy. Walk in the park. That is not what Jesus is saying. Because if you've been reading the book of Matthew, we're, we're walking through the book of Matthew. We, we finished this text just last week in our own church. <clears throat> You'll know that becoming a disciple of Jesus is quite difficult. (laughs) Incredibly demanding. It might cost you your life. You'll have a cross to bear. He tells one disciple he has to give up everything in order to follow him. Jesus is not saying my authority is less demanding. He's saying becoming my disciple, taking my yoke is a kindness to you. To come under my loving authority is to experience my kindness. Dane Ortland gives this example of throwing a life preserver out to a man who is drowning. And if he doesn't understand what he's putting on, that man who's drowning might, might shout out, Why are you putting an extra burden on my back? I'm drowning. I need you to lift me out. But of course, if he just puts his arm through the life preserver, he'll realize that that burden is actually going to lift him up and save him. To put on the yoke of Christ is a kindness. To become a disciple, to submit under the authority of Christ and to follow his teaching is to experience his kindness. Could I get a glass of water? Thank you. That would be wonderful. I think all the heating is just drying me out. So in this very short paragraph, we learn three truths about the kindness of Jesus. And these truths will give you confidence to come to Jesus. So we've had point one is kind of the main point. The point two, three, and four are, are why we can have confidence to come to Jesus exploring his kindness. Second, point number two, Jesus' kindness flows from his very heart. Jesus' kindness flows from his heart. And friends, his heart is just unrelentingly good and beautiful. There are many reasons someone might show kindness to another person. Perhaps it's just pure duty, right? You're a nanny for a child and you don't want to get fired from your job. So you show a fair bit of kindness to that child even though he's a bit of a brat maybe. Sometimes we, we show kindness because we want to be seen as kind. Thank you. <clears throat> Sometimes we show kindness because we want to be seen as kind people, right? We want that admiration. We want articles written in the Wall Street Journal about us. <laughs> if everyone would just be like Luke Harding. I don't think so. No one's writing that. Sometimes we show kindness because others have been kind to us. It's kind of this... this You scratch my back, I scratch your back. If you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you. But Jesus' kindness stems from the goodness of his own heart. Read verse 29. Take my yoke and learn from me, 
For because I am lowly or gentle and humble in heart. Of course, to speak of the heart is to speak of someone's control center, the core of who they are. The heart is what drives you and defines who you are. Only one time in the Gospels does Jesus ever say, this is my heart. And it's right here, he says, I am lowly. I am gentle and humble in heart. The first word he uses to describe his heart is lowly. It's the same word used in the Beatitudes, translated meekness. It carries this idea of humility. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday... Matthew says, the king has come gentle, lowly, and mounted on a donkey. The second word is is the word humble, or or often translated lowly. There's a little bit of overlap in the meaning. If you're reading the ESV, it translates the first one lowly, or I think in the second one there, it's swapped in the the CSB, which which you're using. But, But what's interesting about this second word is that it almost always carries a negative connotation in Greek literature. It is almost always used to describe a poor beggar or a slave. This is not a word you will ever find in any ancient king's bio line. But that's just the point. Jesus is saying, at my core, I am gentle and humble and lowly. I'm not wired to be harsh or cold or inaccessible. I'm eager to embrace and be embraced by the lowliest. That's my heart. Christ might be exalted as a king. He might be terrifyingly glorious and unflinchingly holy, but he is also warm and accessible and surprisingly and remarkably approachable. That is the posture of his heart. You know, friends, one of the reasons I preached a series on the heart of Christ a couple of years ago at Godspeed was because um, I had done a, it was because our son, Hudson, uh, had died suddenly and tragically in 2020. And on the day he died, we, we get back from the hospital, and in God's providence, there was a book sitting on my front porch by Dane Ortland, who I've mentioned, entitled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and for Sufferers. You know, I couldn't read much in the days and months following Hudson's death, but I devoured much of that book. And I've done a lot of reflection on what brought me and our family comfort in the weeks and months following Hudson's death. And friends, you know, I, I, I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God. In fact, if, we, if I didn't have a, a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God, I think we would have fallen apart in, in that devastation. But in that moment of unspeakable devastation, it was not... Christ's sovereignty that most comforted me. It was the heart of Christ. We were so fragile. We were so confused. 
we were utterly destroyed. And the only thing that seemed to bring us any relief was knowing that, that Christ was just not aloof to us. That he would be gentle and kind with us. He will not break a bruised reed. And perhaps the greatest comfort of all was knowing that, that our little Hudson was now nearer and closer to someone who was deeply warm and loving and gentle and kind. That he actually was experiencing more kindness in the arms of Christ than he was even in our own arms. Friends, in our most fragile moments, we need someone whose heart stoops towards us in our pain and in gentleness and in kindness. Point number three, Jesus' kindness meets us where we're at. Jesus' kindness meets us where we are at. Notice the kind of people that Jesus invites himself to. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened. The weary are those who are exhausted by heavy toil. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 5, 5, when Peter describes to Jesus, uh, Jesus, we've been toiling and we've been toiling all night trying to catch the fish and we've caught nothing. But Jesus is not speaking most fundamentally about physical toil here, but about toiling spiritually, trying to save themselves trying to prove themselves, trying to make meaning and significance out of this world apart from Christ, friends, is a toilsome affair, isn't it? The burdened are those who are weighed down. Remember how Jesus indicts the Pharisees in Luke chapter eleven forty six 46, because they load people down with burdens and they don't lift a finger to help them. The Pharisees used the law as a weapon. The law that was meant to provide justice, provide peace for these people, they twisted into a club to bludgeon them with. And so here Jesus is saying, listen, if you are exhausted from the toil, if you are feeling crushed by by, by these burdens, I have come to meet you right where you are at. That is what true kindness is. True kindness is, is reaching out in generosity and compassion to the person who has nothing to offer you in return. Jesus doesn't say, toil in order to receive me. He doesn't say, get rid of your burdens so that you can climb to me. He doesn't say, fix up your lives so that you're worthy of me. He meets us right where we are, crushed, broken, sinful, exhausted. Friends, think about all the things that are weighing you down right now. Exhausting you physically and emotionally and even spiritually. Some of you are having personal burdens right now. You're in a job you hate. You feel stuck in your career. Maybe you feel stuck in your own marriage. Your spouse doesn't love you. You've tried, you've cried, you've you've got counseling... Maybe your whole life feels stuck. You want to be married, but you you just sense there's just no way. 
Maybe you're a teenager out here. And you feel like you'll never meet the the impossible demands of your parents. You'll never meet their expectations. Maybe you're a mom who feels like you're constantly failing your own children. And then there are cultural burdens that we bear. Will we ever see racial unity in America? Will there ever be an end to gun violence? Will there ever be justice for the unborn? Will I lose my friends and my job just because I believe the Bible? Most of all, there are spiritual burdens. And whether we realize it or not, these are our deepest burdens and our deepest problems. Can I ever be forgiven for what I've done? What will these people think of me if they knew my thoughts or if they knew my past? What can I do with this guilt I'm carrying around? Can my sin really ever be removed as far as the east is from the west? Jesus does not expect you to remove your burdens and sort your life out before you come to him and become his disciple. His heart actually moves towards you in your brokenness, in your exhaustion, friends, even in your sin. Jesus meets us in the mire. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost in ruin by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. So it's precisely in our desperation, in the realization of our total inability to save ourselves, that we can actually come to Jesus. Now friends, that is not how most of us, or how our culture treats kindness, is it? No, in our culture, receiving someone's kindness is a privilege that is earned. Yeah, people are willing to show kindness to those they think who deserve it. But that's total hogwash. That's not kindness. What Jesus is doing is kindness. He meets you in the mire of your burdens, even your self-inflicted burdens. And he joins you there in order to pull you out. You know, our culture wants you to think that kindness is either deserved or it's unreserved affirmation, right? Either you, desire, you deserve my kindness because you're with me. Or it's assumed that kindness means affirming me in the mire. Yes, you stay there. You're good. But according to Jesus, true kindness is meeting us in the mire in order to pull us out. Point number four. Jesus' kindness provides what we need most. Jesus' kindness provides what we need most. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What we need most deeply is true rest, or you could say refreshment. That's a good translation of that word. Rest or refreshment. It's not talking about physical rest here, but rest for your 
souls. You know, when we lived in England, we, I pastored in England before I came to New England, and we would take long hikes in what's called the Peak District. The Peak District is just, it's perfect. Um, it's like the Shire. It's quintessential, rugged English countryside with these little chocolate box villages and pubs that are just dotting an endless sea of green. And, and we would always get a little too ambitious on these hikes. We, we would start maybe a mountain loop that maybe three or four miles we had at that time. We had, um, we had three kids, but, but uh, our oldest was maybe four, Jane was four, and Jack was three And as it turned out, I would always end up carrying Jack, the three-year-old, on my shoulders, maybe the last half mile, last mile of our walk. Well, I I remember vividly in our last summer there before we moved here, the heat, there was a massive heat wave going on in in Europe, and and it was extraordinarily hot for England. And, And Jack decided to stop on this mountain hike about a half a mile into a four mile hike. And so Sarah has Hudson on her back. And I was carrying Jack on my shoulders up and down the entire side of a mountain. And then two miles in, Jane goes down and she refuses to walk. And so I've got Jack on my shoulders. I've got Jane on my arms. And and I am just dying of heat. And I am overweight. And life is terrible. Every step is sheer willpower, exhaustion, and anger because the kids, while I'm doing all of this, begin to complain about how hot it is. And I was thinking about leaving them right there. (laughs) I was miserable, but we finally arrived back at the little village. And uh, we put the kids, the two older ones, we looked like loonies. We had two kids in a double stroller and another stroller. So we just looked crazy, especially in England, because there aren't many kids over there. And, and um, we finally make it arrive at the village. The kids fall asleep in the stroller. And we, we, we put our little crew into this little quaint 17th century village pub. And I remember we, we, we order some drinks and some food. The kids are sleeping a cool breeze comes in. We are looking over the, the English countryside. And I look to Sarah and say, everything is going to be okay. It's, life is good. This is, life will be okay. Whatever seemed wrong, this is rest. My sore shoulders, my aching back, my parched throat, all has turned into a quiet summer breeze on the English countryside. I said, Sarah, it's like a little taste of the new heavens and new earth. Friends, our souls are meant to experience something like that. Our souls are meant to be at peace with God and at peace with the world around us. But sin and all that sin has produced, that what we call brokenness, Sin and brokenness have disrupted that peace, and so our hearts, our souls are restless. We're anxious. In fact, there's, there's data out there that the Americans are more anxious than they've ever been before. We're dealing with our own sinful habits. They're difficult to break. Children, we, we see the, the, the sinful habits of our own parents and how they wreak havoc on us. Parents, we see how our own sinful habits can wreak havoc on our own children. 
Spouses, we see our sinful habits, how they hurt our marriages. And we feel powerless to see true change. And so what's going on is there's this internal wrestling match going inside of us all of the time. Yes, even while we wave politely at people on the street and grab our coffee in the morning and and make small talk with a smile pasted on to the people in church, internally, we, we are restless. We are asking ourselves, am I good enough? What if people knew the real me? What if I ruined my child? What if my parents knew what I was really like? What if the Lord turns away from me? What if I'm spiritually really a fraud? And here's the thing. You might not even know that you're asking those questions. Because you don't have to verbalize them. They are there behind every insecure thought. Behind every frustrated conversation. And behind every isolated tear. You might not even realize how restless you are because you've lived so long trying to carry your own burdens that you you forgot what it felt like to lift your head out of the water and breathe the fresh air of the gospel. Friends, only Jesus is equipped to carry these burdens. And these burdens weigh so heavy upon you because at the end of the day, you can't fix yourself and you certainly can't fix the world. So what can you do? You've got to take the you got to run to Jesus. You've got to take the yoke of discipleship. You've got to submit to the good and loving authority of Christ. You've got to say, I am putting my trust in Christ. I'm trusting that Christ took my sin and my guilt and the shame on the cross, and now it is buried. I'm free. I am free from the shame and the penalty of that sin. In a word, you must experience the kindness of Christ. And where do we find the deepest expression of Christ's kindness? Well, Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, that the ultimate expression of kindness is found at the cross of Jesus. Paul says, at one time we too were foolish, we were disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and all kinds of pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. It sounds like the 21st century. But when the kindness And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done. But because of his mercy. Mercy. Displayed. At the cross. Friends we need kindness. Our world. Desperately needs kindness. Our institutions need kindness. As individuals, we need kindness. But friends, we need to experience kindness at a deeper level than Ted Lasso or Princess Diana or random act of kindness. The kindness heralded and featured 
by the world just does not have the depth nor the resources to actually change you, to deal honestly with your real sin, to heal a broken and burdened world. But Jesus, he invites you into his own kindness. It's an invitation to submission, to his own lordship. It's an invitation to discipleship. But ultimately, friends, it is an invitation to rest your weary and parched soul. Come ye, weary, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, and not just pity, but love and power. That's what we need. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness to us, you sent your Son the expression of kindness, the greatest expression of kindness we have, can ever experience in the cross. Father, that we would believe this morning that to submit under the yoke of Christ will be a kindness to us. Lord, that we would stop striving to carry our own burdens, but that we would run to Christ empty-handed. Lord, save me. Take me from the mire of my sin and guilt and bring me close to your chest where I can find true rest. May our prayer be the song we will just sing. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. In Jesus' name, amen.